It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is a, a fun episode in many ways. First of all, we have a new batch of students here. We have our week-long training uh, that is in town. And some of these people don't even know what Daily Thunder is. So could you imagine not knowing what Daily Thunder is when there's 1,020 episodes prior and you didn't even know what it was? That's, that's terrible. That's a crime of some sort. But uh, we're also in the midst of a series. This is episode 20 in the series that I'm doing currently uh, over this training season. And my series is called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. And it covers a, a range of time in American history which is very critical to defining the current climate in which we live today. A lot of us can't figure out why our world is behaving the way it is, and it's just like, well, go back to this time period, and you can sort of understand it. You can understand the soil from which we have sprung. And a lot of us have this notion that the the climate that we are currently dealing with is a result of some invasion of uh, liberal ideology. And I'm not gonna say that isn't a big part of it, but there's another part of it too that has to do with us as the church. There's a season where the church has not functioned as the church ought to function, and what that does is it creates a vacuum. And so it's very important that we learn not to cluck our tongue in the wrong direction and make sure we allow for a self-examination of the Spirit of God for us as the church as well. And so that's part of what I'm walking through is that we have certain issues in our history. I, by the way, I'm a huge uh, fan of our country, America. I love, I love the country of America and I'm blessed to be an American in so many regards. And so I'm not one that wants to kick America, but I also want to be very honest with our history and not overlook things that are actually creating a tripping point for us today. I want to effectively address that. The same is true in my life. I could say, hey, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Hey, why are you picking on me? I didn't do anything. And I could try and resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I could try and justify and rationalize where I stand today. Or I could allow my life to be examined by the Spirit of God and he could set me free from that proneness or that proclivity that I would otherwise have to actually live with strength and triumph. I love this country and I want us to succeed. But we have to address some very serious things in our history effectively. We can't just say, yeah, 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 that happened. And it's a very common thing that we do today. It's like, yeah, 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 that happened, but I didn't do it. That's a, that's, an, that's a good statement, and I agree with it. You didn't do that. But in a sense, there is a responsible party, and it continues forward. It's just like you see sin visiting the third and fourth generation. There's a responsible party that is, in a sense, a descendant of someone that still is the one that is currently there to do something about what did happen. Otherwise, we never address that which has previously occurred. So let's begin this, and you're going to, uh, you, you sort of need to catch my other 19 episodes to really catch up, because black and white America could sound like it's a racial thing, and it is, but not always. It's also the season of black and white television, black and white movies, the first movie that is going to be released, major blockbuster movie is 1915. And so you have this season where our memory of this season between 1914 and 1974 is in black and white. 
It's also the era of black and white, which could mean dogmatism, like sharp contrasts and sharp opinions. Yes, this is that time period. And some of the crimes that are going to take place in this time period are done with righteous indignation. And this is the rise, for instance, of the Ku Klux Klan. In the 1920s, you're going to have an explosion where the Ku Klux Klan had 8 to 10 million in its membership roles. That is a massive portion of society that is going to believe that they are doing something right to keep our country pure. And yet their ideal of purity was off. It was skewed. It was not the biblical ideal. Something had twisted in our country. And most, if not all, of those Ku Klux Klan members, wearing their white hoods and their white outfits, had crosses over their heart. Okay, so in other words, we have something to address in our culture. If we were to look at Nazi Germany, we'd cluck our tongues and we'd say, look at those people. That's 80% Christian in that country. What are they doing out over there? Do they not realize how wrong it is to treat a people group this way? And we need to make sure we know who's talking. Because some of the ways that we have handled those that are in our midst has been equally detestable, even if it didn't lead to concentration camps. And so for us, the integrity of the church is very, very significant. And I would love to dive a little deeper into that today. So this is episode 20, Being Jackie. Who's Jackie? Isn't that an intriguing one? There's a few Jackies in history. Uh, one of my, I remember I had a chance to meet Jackie Slater, who was like an offensive lineman for the, the Rams, who's a football player, big, huge guy. And he made it to the Hall of Fame. And we're not talking about that guy, okay? Uh, we have some other options. Uh, who's Jackie? So remember uh, Jackie Kennedy, uh, Jackie Onassis Kennedy? Uh, and we're not talking about her, even though that, that would be part of my 1914 and 1974. I would have put a black and white picture if we were dealing with that, right? Because this is black and white America. That's a full color picture right there. Uh, so this message is about a guy named Jackie. So here's another option. Uh, this is... Uh this is Jackie Ludi. Uh, we have a dog named Jackie. Uh, he's named after, my son named him, his middle name's Jack. Uh, and so he named his dog Jackie. And so we have, uh, this is an option for this, uh, this story. It's not black and white photos, so I'm guessing you could probably lean and guess uh, which way. Look at this one on the left, he's playing the guitar. Uh, isn't that cute? He has this like little outfit on and there's Harper carrying Jackie. And this is, I guess a yawn. I thought it was a funny picture. And this is uh, it's sort of the same yawn type of look, but this is his look when he's being attacked by Buck, where he's like, hey, this is unfair. Uh, and then there he is with Gumby. Uh, and uh, there's Jackie and Buck, our, our two dogs. But this isn't about that Jackie. Uh, this is about Jackie Robinson. Now, I reserved the right to deal with Jackie Robinson because I had this other one it's called The Providence of 42, which I said could trigger thoughts of a character named Jackie Robinson because it's possibly the most famous number in all of baseball history is the number 42. The reason I say that is because it's been retired by every major league baseball team, that number. And so there's Jackie Robinson wearing his uh, famous uh, 42. Uh, he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, I say on the screen, number 42, possibly the most famous number in baseball history. So Jackie Robinson, I'm not sure if you know anything about Jackie Robinson, but uh, what he did was remarkable. It really is remarkable. 
And I'm not one of those guys that likes to play the race card, likes to even address issues of race. And it's a really hard topic, I, I have to admit. And I've been going headlong into some very, very hard topics this entire series. And so if you like uncomfortable messages, you should listen to my previous 19 sessions. They're very uncomfortable. And my, my opinion about that is, if it's uncomfortable, it's probably necessary to address. If, if I'm only hanging out in the topics that are comfortable, I'm probably missing the central points of what our culture is needing truth applied to. And so, yes, I'm going to be touching on some uncomfortable issues, but here's what's interesting to me. You know, many of us in here and many people that hang out at Ellerslie lean conservative. And I lean conservative. However, the way I've been handling this entire message, the way I want to handle every topic, technically, is not as a conservative or as a Republican. I want to handle it as a Christian. That even though I lean uh, conservative, and even though if I were voting, I would vote conservative, and even though I have opinions about things, I want to handle the Word of God not just through the lens of conservatism, nor through the lens of liberalism. It's not like the opposite is true. I want to look at it through the lens of a Christian. You know that in the times of Jesus, you had conservatives and liberals? There's always been conservatives and liberals, politically, socially, always. And did you know who crucified Jesus? Conservatives and liberals. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The Sadducees were the liberals. They both conspired to kill Jesus. I'm not interested in taking a side against another populist party in this country. I'm interested in siding with Jesus to see everyone saved. I'm going after conservatives and liberals to see them set free. There's a whole bunch of conservatives that are going to go to hell. They don't know Jesus. Just because you're conservative does not mean you've been saved, transformed by Jesus Christ. I'm interested in seeing them set free by the shed blood of Jesus, by the power of the gospel. And so though I lean conservative, and though many of you do, it's funny how it can color our ability to see certain issues. So I could lay out a whole bunch of issues. And I could lay out, you know, things like abortion. You're like, oh, boy, that's... Yeah. I could lay out issues, you know, like the gender uh, dysphoria and the confusion. That's, oh, LGBTQ plus. Oh. And as conservatives, we're fairly predictable, right? That these things are, are erroneous. They're wrong. They're off-center. They're, they're not biblically approached. And then I could say something like racial inequality. And because it is associated with a liberal camp, the conservatives can find themselves fighting against it. When in actuality, guys, if there was ever something that should not be, I mean, these are not liberal conservative issues. This is a moral issue. Just like abortion, when it, when it, it's, it's funny that a liberal could stand against abortion. As far as I'm concerned, they should be the biggest proponents. The liberal have a tendency to be the bleeding heart, the ones that care for the weak, right? They're the ones that see the underprivileged. They see the ones that are harmed out there. They're like standing and fighting for them. I can think of no better cause for them than an unborn child. So it is funny how we work, how we you know, group that. Oh, that's a conservative issue. Oh, this is a liberal issue. There are issues that are on God's heart, and I don't care which side of the ledger it lands on. If it's in the center of God's heart, it's in the center of our heart. And the way we treat each other and the way we handle the issues of race and ethnicity is abysmal in our history. It really is. And it's something that has to be dealt with in us because in a strange sense, the church has led a lot of the crimes in this territory. 
So Jackie Robinson, what he did was remarkable. So he has a brother, and his name is Mac Robinson. You probably never heard of Mac. And yet Mac was actually a rather famous character. So he's his big brother, and there he is. Uh, he was a famous athlete. He is going to qualify for the Olympic Games in 1936, and he is going to run in the 200. There just happens to be another character running in the 200, and this is under the watchful eye of Adolf Hitler in Berlin, Germany. And at that time, Adolf Hitler was making his claim of the superior Aryan race, and under his nose is, are gonna be two black men running in the 200, and they're gonna finish first and second. Jesse Owens is going to beat Mac Robinson by 0.4th of a second. And so Mac Robinson is not gonna be heard of, no one will know his name throughout history because he finished second in the Berlin Olympics. It's very uh, interesting, but an amazing accomplishment. At the Summer Olympics in Berlin in 1936, Mac Robinson won the silver medal, finishing only 0.4 seconds behind Jesse Owens in the 200 meters. So upon Mac's return from this grand achievement, the best job he was able to get was a garbage man. There was no position. It doesn't matter what his accomplishments are. He's still a black man. Jesse Owens, when he returned, I don't know if you've ever heard the stories of the, they, they threw a party in a, in a huge hotel. I don't remember if it was in New York City, but it was a huge hotel uh, for him. And it was a congratulatory celebration for his accomplishment in the Olympic Games. And they wouldn't allow him in the front door of the hotel. He had to go around the back alley and enter through the black entrance to his, <laughs> to his own celebration. I mean, that is like, uh, how blind are we, guys? I mean, that's like very embarrassing. That happened on our watch in our country. But we have no ability to honor a black man at this time. That's what's interesting is to honor a black man is to empower a black man. To empower a black man is to throw the social order of our country out of whack. And you're going to see this throughout uh, American history. I'm if you've heard the series, you're going to see this trend taking place that there's, after World War I, when all these black men went over and fought on our behalf as a nation, when they came back, they were a threat because now they knew how to fight. And the worst thing that the American culture could imagine is black people who knew how to fight. And so there is going to be great persecution. Men that are, black men wearing uniforms are going to be lynched because they had the audacity to walk the streets of this country wearing that uniform, thinking they were all that. I mean, that's like hard to swallow, but very real in our history and something that, like I've said, we need to address. So meanwhile, Jackie becomes a superstar at UCLA. This guy is not just a good athlete. I mean, there is something special about this man. So he's going to letter in four sports, first time in UCLA history. I mean, just to letter in one sport in a college, if any of you ever did it, that's a major accomplishment. Basketball, football, track, and baseball. So Bill Plaschke, a sports columnist, said this. Jackie Robinson was a local tennis champion. Now, by the way, I've never seen any other proof of that. This could be a misquote from this guy, but he even said that, a local tennis champion. I, I just can't even imagine it. But he may have meant basketball. That's the only thing I can guess. But Jackie Robinson was a local tennis champion. He was a local football stud. He was a great track star. Baseball was almost the last thing he was great at. He was great at everything he could have done anything. 
So Jackie is going to uh, head off to war in uh, 1942 when the, remember, we're going to be bombed by uh, the Japanese in Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. So in 42, we're going to have a, a movement into uniform and many black soldiers are going to sign up, even though, I mean, for all practical purposes, if you saw how they were treated after they signed up for the Civil War and you saw how they were treated after signing up for World War I, you would question why they would want to sign up for World War II. But in World War I, if you heard my, uh, my message, The Red Summer, the motivation was, and there was a, a statement amongst uh, the, the black people that if you want to be treated as an equal in this country, then show that you love your country. Fight for your country. And then when you come back, they'll have no ability but to, to make it clear to you that you deserve true American citizenship, the full rights of an American citizen. And so they did, and it didn't go so well when they got back. And so now they're gonna do it again. And so you have many, many black people that are gonna head off to war in 42, Jackie Robinson being one of them. So while in the army during World War II, Lieutenant Jackie Robinson was commanded to move to the back of a segregated bus, and he refused to do it. As a result, he was arrested. Robinson fought a court-martial and was eventually given an honorary discharge from the army. This would be a hard thing, guys. You're in the army. You're fighting for your country. You're the one that chose to go into this situation, and now you're asked to go to the back of a bus, which is, that's the way, that's Jim Crow laws. That's the way it is back in America. But we're not in America anymore. And I should be treated like everyone else on this bus. I'm wearing the same uniform. So he refuses to do it. You don't do that in America. If you're the black guy, you go back to your spot in the bus. You do know that, right? This is Jim Crow America. Now, if you don't know what Jim Crow America is, you need to go back to my first uh, couple messages where we do a deep dive into how it works. And there's a certain rule book. And he's not going to move to the back. And he's going to be arrested. And they were going to, I mean, dishonorably discharge him too. He was going to be seriously penalized. There is going to be multiple people that are going to come to his aid to say, hey, Let's not make an issue out of this. Just discharge him honorably and everything's going to be fine. And they did. So Jackie's a great athlete, you know, as we've, we've mentioned, and he's going to want to play baseball. So he can't play in Major League Baseball. They don't allow black people. It's a segregated sport. So they have the Major Leagues and then they have the Negro Leagues is what they were called. So Jackie signs with the Kansas City Monarchs in 1945. The Negro League was the only option for playing professional baseball. So there's going to be a character, and in fact, if I had more time, I would have made this message on a character named Branch Rickey. He's not necessarily the most commonly known character. Like Jackie Robinson is fairly well known, whereas Branch Rickey, not so much unless you are a diehard baseball fan, and then you, you would know his name. So Branch Rickey in The Great Experiment. One man takes a big risk. So he's the manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he's been in baseball for a long time. He used to be a player, and he's moved his way up through the ranks. He's the one that created the baseball farm system. Very well-known guy. It's going to actually transform the, the sport of baseball. But he has a vision. Now, this man, and the, one of the reasons I would love to do a deeper dive on him is he seems to have deep convictions, like Christian conviction of how he wants to live his life. He originally got, he got signed by the Cincinnati Reds and he got cut from the Cincinnati Reds because he refused to play on Sundays. It's like, that just intrigues me just right there. I'm fascinated by this guy. But I'm even more fascinated by the fact that he is going to do what he's going to do. 
And that is that there was an unspoken rule in baseball that even though some of these uh, Negro League players were really good, you don't sign them. You don't let them into this environment known as Major League Baseball. And Branch Rickey is going to thumb his nose at the whole system. He's been looking for years for the right guy to do it because he knows whoever he brings in as the experiment is going to have all hell come down on him. So he needs a man of sterling character, not just great quality, great skill. Like some people have said throughout history that there maybe were other players as good or even potentially better than Jackie Robinson in the Negro Leagues, great players. But there was no one quite like Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was Branch Rickey's pick. And this is after watching for years, like who would I pick? Who could actually walk through this gauntlet? Who, who could actually carry the weight of culture upon them? Because this is going to be a bold maneuver to bring a black man into the white leagues. And he chooses Jackie Robinson. So there is a picture of Branch Rickey. Uh, looks like a nice guy, doesn't he? So Branch Rickey defies the system. He selects Jackie Robinson as the test case. So what does he know? Now, Jackie Robinson's tutor throughout this whole situation is going to be Branch Rickey. He's going to tell him how to handle every situation. He's going to be like the father. He's going to take Jackie under his wing, and he's going to tell him, this is what's going to happen. Here's how I want you to respond. So here's, here's the list. This man will be verbally abused. He'll be spat upon. Debris will be hurled at him. His own teammates will not want to play alongside him. His opponents will despise him and refuse to play if he plays. He will need to sit apart in the bus. He will need to sleep in a different hotel. He will need to eat at a different restaurant, and he will need to use a different restroom. Welcome to 1947. I mean, that's hard for us to comprehend, but that black man cannot come into this hotel. He cannot eat at that table. He cannot use this restroom. So not only do his teammates not want him, on the team, but everyone he's playing, there's all sorts of problems because they say, if he plays, I will not play. I mean, this is creating a massive problem in the league. Are we sure we want to go through this? Are we sure we really want to awaken this issue? And Branch Rickey presses it forward. It's like, no, he's playing. He's playing. If you want to be cut, I choose Jackie Robinson over you. So if you don't want to play, all right, go find a different team. I mean, he's going to risk everything for this. Could you imagine that's your career and you have these like convictions, you don't want to play with this guy, but it's like either your job or you play with them. Oh, I mean, that's part of the great storyline here. Now for us, most of us don't have the same struggles <laughs> in our soul, so we can't comprehend. And yet there are certain issues if we can get whatever parallel we can to show the humanity, because we are humans just like they were. And we have our biases and we have our prejudices and we have our issues that are not necessarily God's issues, but we've adopted them in a cultural sense. So Renford Reese says this, Branch Rickey knew that he needed more than a superb baseball player. He needed someone of flawless and impeccable character. And he found that person in Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson is a special man. I'm going to say it too. What he stepped into was an impossible situation. And yet how he walked through it was so noble and admirable. The contract with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Okay, imagine getting a contract like this. 
Jackie Robinson, when you receive racial insults and threats of physical violence, you must turn the other cheek and ignore it. Do you know that if he doesn't turn the other cheek, if he fights back, he's cut from the team? His contract is null and void. That, that is a weird thing to put in a contract, but that's in Jackie Robinson's contract. He cannot respond to all that is going to come against him. He has to submit to it. Wow. Now, I don't, I'm going to give you guys a hint of where I'm going with this. I don't know if you can sort of connect the dots yourself spiritually, but when the father is going to sign a contract with his star player and send Jesus to the major leagues, he's going to put something in his contract too. As a sheep unto slaughter, he opens not his mouth. I mean, it is rather profound here what we're going to see. I mean, this is like a great picture of a sheep unto slaughter. So biography.com simply says, in response to how Jackie handled that contract, Robinson kept his word and his dignity. Isn't that a great quote? I mean, I had to lift that quote out. I just thought that was just a great quote. Robinson kept his word and his dignity. So Jackie is going to play his first major league game. April 15th, 1947, big day, okay? April 15th still to this day is celebrated. It's, you know, Jackie Robinson day. This is, this is a day when something very difficult took place. Rather impossible if you know American history. So the spit, the fury, the threats, and the rage. This was hard because he's going to work through the, uh, the farm system, the Brooklyn Dodgers farm system for two years. And he is going to be not just a superstar, he's going to be one of the greatest players anyone had ever seen. They'd never seen anyone play like this, they just didn't want to acknowledge it. You know the newspapers will not write about Jackie Robinson? They will not cover it. So he's doing these phenomenal things, but they won't cover it. They, they might mention it in the statistics column, but they can't bring commentary. You know why? Because if you say something positive about him, then that is going to come back on you because you're a supporter of the black people. And it's the same thing that happened in Germany, guys. If you were to shop at a Jew's store, if you were to befriend a Jew or have them over for dinner at night, then you are a supporter of the Jew, and a lover of the Jew deserves what the Jew gets. And so we have a culture that doesn't quite know how to deal with this superstar, because they can't support him, they can't really applaud him, and they don't stop the people from jeering at him and yelling at him and screaming at him and spitting upon him, because to stop them would, to show, would show that you identify with Jackie, as opposed to with what the culture needs. You know that we have inverted ways of that even today? There are certain things that if you don't support certain movements today, then you are part of the problem. And in culture, that is just a very real thing that happens. It's a movement of culture. It's the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. So this is in his first game outside of Brooklyn. It was the Dodgers versus the Phillies. This is a famous, or I should say infamous, moment in, in baseball history. But Dick Cavett is going to interview uh, Jackie Robinson in 1972. So we're in 1947. So this is quite uh, a few years later, right? And Jackie Robinson is long retired. He's going to retire in 1955 or 1956, right in there. I mean, he does, he's not going to play that long. Dick Cavett is talking about this very incident, like starting in the majors, what did you go through? What was yelled at you, I think is his very question. Dick Cavett is going to say, what was yelled at you? Jackie Robinson is going to say, you name it. In terms of racial epithets, everything. It was quite vicious. I think 
Ben Chapman in the Philadelphia Phillies was perhaps the, mo perhaps the most vicious of any people in terms of name-calling. This is like how he's starting. So Ben Chapman is sort of going to go down in history as the ultimate villain <laughs> because he's, gonna, he's the manager of the Phillies, and he's going to stand out there and just give it to Jackie when he comes up to the plate for the first time. And, I mean, the whole crowd is hostile, but Ben Chapman... And the rest of the Phillies, I mean, a lot of them are supporting it, and they're, they're throwing out their jeers, too, because they were even commanded by their, gener by their manager to do it. It's like, you make this man's life a living hell. That's what your job is today. So this is what Jackie Robinson says. It's actually a really cool story. There was a fellow by the name of Lee Handley on that ball club that came down to first base when I was there, because he played first base, Jackie Robinson did, and apologized for the Phillies. He just said, I want you to know all of us don't feel that way. It did give me a good feeling to know that in spite of what was coming out of the Philly dugout, one guy would come down and say that he was awfully sorry. The most despised man in baseball history. Now, that's an arguable point. Uh, you know, Pete Rose has been rather despised. Poor guy. Uh, still trying to get into the uh, Hall of Fame. But Ben Chapman likely is the most despised character in baseball history. There's a, there's a picture of him. He sort of looks a little mean in that picture, too. He was a great ball player. He played like in the days of Babe Ruth. And he was like a legendary character himself. And he's going to move up through the managerial ranks. And he's going to run into a buzzsaw socially when he takes on Jackie Robinson. Because he's doing what everyone what he thinks is the social climate of the day, and he's trying to voice it, he's trying to represent it, and he thinks the culture is gonna get behind him, but he doesn't recognize that we're right at a watershed in history, where what he's doing may have gotten, he could have gotten away with that in previous years. It's not working the same way, it sounds too extreme. It's, it's, it's funny how watershed points in cultural history work, but he's now overstepping to the point where even the, man, even the, uh, the one who's overall baseball uh, is going to correct him and say, you need to make that right. So Ben Chapman had a problem with black people. That's an understatement. Uh, and he was a spokesman of the superior crowd. So for those of you that don't like the term white supremacist, I'm not a big fan of it either, especially when, you know, this, this whole movement today uh, and the uh, critical race theory and all the mindsets behind it are very difficult for us to know how to swallow and, and digest and interact with. But there really is something known as superiority and a, a complex of it. Aryan, Aryan superiority was what Hitler espoused that there was a certain sort of human that was superior to other humans. And we espoused a very similar thing in our ranks here in America. And so white supremacy is not a term we typically use today, but it is a term that was freely used back in the day. And Ben Chapman was definitely one of those. So this is Harold Parrott, who was the Brooklyn Dodgers traveling secretary. So Ben Chapman had been with the Brooklyn Dodgers and had uh, been removed from the Brooklyn Dodgers. And so uh, this is what Harold Parrott said. Now, this is actually a really hard paragraph to read, but you can at least get inside the skin of what was going on and you could understand a little more of what he would have been yelling at uh, Jackie Robinson that day even. 
Ben Chapman mentioned everything he thought about the inferiority of black people, from thick lips to the supposedly extra-thick Negro skull, which he, had which he said restricted brain growth to almost animal level when compared to white folk. He listed the repulsive sores and diseases he said Robbie's, that's Robinson's, teammates would be infected with if they touched the towels or combs he used. He charged Jackie outright with breaking up his own Brooklyn team. The Dodgers, Dodger players had told him privately, he said, that they wished that the black man would go back to the south where he belonged, picking cotton, swabbing out latrines, or worse. So imagine entering into a league that had this thinking. You know that even when a black person would go into a restaurant, they had to bring their own pail and silverware, lest they defile the silverware and the plates of the establishment. They, when they went into a, a store to buy clothes, they could not try them on unless they bought them because no one else, no white person would want to try on those clothes if a black person had touched them and infected them. This is a very, very dangerous mindset that was very prevalent in our country. Very hard for us to swallow, very hard for us to comprehend, but also something to recognize that we are descendants of this in this country. This was, a, this was not just a small thing in our country, this was a prevalent thing. Jackie could not respond. Contractually and cult culturally, any response or any retaliation would be his end. So this is in a time period known as Jim Crow. Now that might not mean much to you, but if a black man exerts himself against a white person, then lynching is the immediate response from the white community to put that black man in his place. Not only that, but contractually, he is obligated not to say anything in response. So could you imagine that contractually and culturally you can do nothing but take it? Ooh, that's really hard. For some of us, our dignity is like hanging on the line. What would we do in such a situation? Jackie Robinson is going to take it. And he's going to take it. And he's going to take it. You know how he's going to take it? He's going to take it with a humble bearing, a sweet smile on his face, and a crack of the bat to get a base hit. Oh, and then he's going to steal second. Maybe steal third and steal home, too. He led the league in steals. And so he's going to come into this league and shock everyone because even though all hell is breaking loose against him, he doesn't seem to notice it. He just plays his game. And that is going to garner him such respect because everyone that watches in that time period, all we look at today is stats. You know, we look back in the history books and we're like, oh, well, how good of a player was he? You're missing something when you evaluate Jackie Robinson just on his stats. How would you be able to play if everyone in the crowds is booing you, yelling at you, throwing things at you? If pitch pitchers are purposely trying to throw a beanball at you and hit you and intimidate you and you do nothing. You can't run out. You know, that's the classic thing. If you get, if so, you as a baseball player, as a, as a batter, feel like a pitcher is aiming at you. Have you ever seen the guys, they throw down their bat and run out and charge the mound? If Jackie does that, he's a goner. He has to take it. He just steps back and steps right back into the batter's box. Whew. This is hard stuff, guys. You see, as humans, we are wired to defend ourselves. We are wired with something known as pride. And it causes us to shout back. It causes us to return 
the favor. If someone throws a ball at us, we'll throw a ball at them. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Yet Jesus is going to come to this earth and he's going to set a different pattern. He's going to show us how to take it. And he's going to show us that there is a greater power that is demonstrated in and through love than in and through retaliation. So contractually and culturally, any response or any retaliation would be Jackie Robinson's end. So the strange and unexpected impact of Ben Chapman. So when you have Ben Chapman yelling at you, yelling at you, yelling at you, and he's just symbolic because this was just one of the guys, just happened to be the most extreme, and this was right at the beginning of his career. But what it's going to do, you remember this team known as the Brooklyn Dodgers that didn't want him on the team? You know that what this is going to do is when they're sitting in the dugout and they're watching the other teams yell at their player, it's a funny thing, a funny dynamic, but the Dodgers players are going to start defending Jackie. And they're going to stand with Jackie and they're actually going to bring him into their fold like, hey, you know, and they're going to stand on his behalf. It's going to bond them together. Rather shocking turn of events there. Now, what I just gave you was a spiritual principle. Maybe you didn't catch it though. Is that in our life when we're bombarded with the Chapman impact from this world around us, did you know that God's grace allies with us in a, in a greater measure and we become stronger in and through it? Same thing that's happening in this microcosm of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So Jackie Robinson, in an interview with the Brooklyn Eagle in 1949, says this, I'll never forget the day when a few loudmouthed guys on the other team begin to take off on Pee Wee Reese. So Pee Wee Reese is one of his fellow teammates. Isn't that a great name? And uh, he was a, he's a great player in history too. But they were joshing him very viciously because he was playing on the team with me and was on the field nearby. Mind you, they were not yelling at me. I suppose they did not have the nerve to do that. But they were calling him some very vile names and everyone bounced off of Pee Wee and hit me like a machine gun bullet. Pee-wee kind of sensed the hopeless dead feeling in me and came over and stood beside me for a while. He didn't say a word, but he looked over at the chaps who were yelling at me through him and just stared. He was standing by me. I could tell you that. Slowly the jibes died down, like when you kill a snake an inch at a time, and then there was nothing but quiet from them. It was wonderful the way this little guy did it. I will never forget it. Do you imagine having a crowd out there and choosing to walk up to the one that is indirectly being jeered? It's like being the one that stands with the Jew in Germany and, can, and actually walking over to the Jew and sticking your arm around him. But in this case, it's the black man. And Pee Wee Reese is going to go over. Historically, the story is that he came over and put his arm around him. There's even, I think, a statue in New York City uh, that shows this. Uh, there's all sorts of debate. If you, get, if you try and research the stories, all sorts of debate of if this ever actually happened this way, if it happened in the first year, if it happened in the second year. No, I don't think it makes any difference. And that's what the whole point. It doesn't make any difference when it happened. It happened. We just don't know when. But what a story and what a picture. So there's uh, Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese right there. That's, of course, not the actual moment, but that's the same arm around the shoulder. Scott Simon, who wrote the book Jackie Robinson, The Integration of Baseball, uh, wrote the valor, said, the valor with which Jackie Robinson responded to the jeers, the hatred, the bigoted remarks, and the catcalls is one of the great silent portraits in American history. Under that hail of threats and epithets, he would walk into the batter's box and over a third of the time he would get a hit. I think he batted like 330 or 340. 
That's what he did. He certainly didn't cower. He didn't flinch. So in the 19, he's going to come into the league in 1947, and he's going to win Rookie of the Year. In 1949, he is going to be voted league MVP. These are huge honors. Now remember, the time period in which we live, it's very hard for anyone to honor someone unless they, they're actually so obviously deserving it. Bill Plaschke, the sports columnist, says Jackie Robinson wasn't just a great symbol. He was a great baseball player. He led the Dodgers to six pennants in his 10 years. This was a Brooklyn Dodgers team that were called the bums because they couldn't win. When he shows up in 1947, the Dodgers were known as the bums. And they're going to win six pennants in 10 years, and they're going to win the World Series in 1955. And everyone knows why. It's because of Jackie Robinson. That's a pretty extraordinary story. Jackie leads the bums to a World Series victory, 1955. I think that's a great way to honor Branch Rickey and what he is doing in this situation, is that he is going to find such great success as he stands with the black community. And 1952, I think it was, there's going to be 150 black men in the majors. That's the explosion that's going to happen because of this movement forward. Scott Simon says, the story of Jackie Robinson changed the literal complexion of the game. It changed the complexion of images and what we saw in the newspapers and the black and white images on the television. It put a black man at the center of the story of America. I think we have been an imperfect but infinitely better society ever since. So I'm going to isolate out some, some movements in this storyline, and then I'm going to do a deeper dive scripturally into what this is that we're looking at. What is this that is stirring to us? And I'm going to call part of it a pulling a peewee. Okay, that's, his name is sort of fun to use anyways. But pulling a peewee, walking across the infield and standing with the mistreated one. That isn't always just the black person. There's a whole bunch of those that are in that camp. And we understand them. You know, Jesus is going to make it very clear. Matthew 25, 40, where he's going to say, what you do unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And so pulling a peewee is actually Christianity. This is what we do. I don't care what the current climate is, and I don't care what everyone thinks. What does God think? And if God is devaluing these people because of their ethnicity and race, okay, well, maybe that's a big deal then. But I guarantee you, God has a special place in his heart for those that are devalued in the world's eyes. And those are the very ones that he is going out of his way in and through the church to reach and to express his love towards. That's his special royalty in this world. And how we treat them is ultimately the picture of God's work in our life. How we respond on that field that day when we see one, one of our guys, one of our team being belittled and that machine gun of accusation coming against him that we would be willing to walk over and in front of everyone put our arm around him. I remember my sister's description of Christianity. It's always stuck with me. She said, okay, imagine you're at Golgotha, Calvary. Jesus is hanging on the cross. You have the two thieves next to him. He looks like a common criminal. He's hanging there naked. He's covered in blood. Everyone is jeering. Everyone is mocking. They're ridiculing him. They're saying he deserves this. They're happy to see him die. And you get up and you walk straight up to the base of the cross and you turn around. And they're looking at you going, what are you doing? 
And you, even though your hand be trembling, you point your hand up towards the bloody pulp of a man. You say, I'm with him. Christianity. Whew. Uh, well, that takes a little something, doesn't it? Yeah, it takes a little something. I want to tell you what that something is. That's the grace of God. It's the very thing God wants to do inside of us. Because there is a loud mouth culture around us that wants to define the way we think and the way we live. The Spirit of God wants to teach us how to do it Jesus' way. I don't care if it falls on the conservative or the liberal spectrum of emphasis. It makes no difference. It's what is on God's spectrum of emphasis. That is the issue. And how we handle it is like Jesus Christ. That is what he gives us grace to do. So then pull in a Jackie. I'm very attracted to the way Jackie Robinson lived out his life. Very intrigued by it. And you know, I'm not a black man. And I can't say that I identify or can fully walk in this man's shoes of what he went through, right? In fact, if I said I could, it'd be like the equivalent of saying I understand what childbirth feels like. There'd be a whole bunch of women mad at me. Because if, if you've never experienced racial slurs and insults, if you've never been treated differently because of the color of your skin, it's sort of hard to truly identify. I get that. At the same time, I'm a believer, and I have been rather vocal in my faith, and because I stand with Christ, I have been treated differently than the world around me. And certain things that would have been luxuries for everyone else in my generation were removed from my list of opportunities. I've oftentimes said the worst thing you can do for your career advancement is boldly proclaim Jesus. And I've proven that. If I write a book now and it's, say it's, it doesn't directly speak like Christianese, everyone's still going to know I'm a Christian. Okay, he's just cloaking it. He's covering it up. No matter what I do, I've boldly proclaimed Jesus. I've boldly identified with Jesus. Now I have a limp in my step. I actually understand that a cultural or a social oppression towards a people. I get it. Not in the same way. I never had this sort of thing happen to me that Jackie had, but we can taste it in different ways. So pull in a Jackie. Graciously overlooking the threats, the jeers, the epithets, and the catcalls, and showing kindness in response. So here is a picture. This was a photo op back in 1947, I believe, where the... Uh, <coughs> The director of the major leagues at the time is going to force Ben Chapman to take a publicity photo with Jackie Robinson. And uh, there's all sorts of rumor about this. One is that Chapman would not shake his hand. He would not touch him. So they held a bat. And according to Jackie Robinson, this is one of the hardest moments in his entire life. And yet, if I'm going to choose a character there to go by facial expression, I'm choosing Jackie. Uh, and I, I like him. Of course, you already know too much about ben, probably, ben Chapman to probably like him in this picture. But hey, Jesus loved Ben Chapman too. And if Ben Chapman was here still alive, we would want to go after his soul. That's just the facts of the matter. But I do not like his behavior. So the season of Chapman, it unlocks greater grace. So 1947 is the season of Chapman for Jackie Robinson. And I've had seasons of Chapman in my life. I had uh, a season, which I will go into in just a second, but which taxed me in such a huge way, and it was a voice constantly speaking diminishment against me. 
So in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, we're going to hear about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Now, it's very likely that this was a physical ailment because that would be the best translation of thorn in the flesh, an actual sharp, pointy thing in his body, something that is impacting him. And it's, we know it's a messenger of Satan come to buffet him. These are, there's things we know. So what Paul says is, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds then, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So a season of Chapman right here. Paul is going to have a Chapman season where he is going to be in the batter's box and he's going to have something hurled at him. He's going to have an oppression coming against him and he's going to want it to shut up just like we would. God, could you shut this thing up? This is hard for me. God says, embrace it. I'll make you stronger. If you allow this to remain and you don't complain about it, but you embrace it, you're going to recognize my sufficiency of grace in this time. You're going to recognize that I'm going to give you everything you need. The Dodgers team is going to become strong. They're going to win the pennant in his first year. They went from being the bums to winning the pennant in the first year. Why? Because Jackie's going to stride out onto that field and he's going to embrace this. He is going to rejoice, if you will, the way a Christian ought to and say, okay, and I could just see him mumbling to himself, Lord, give me a hit. I mean, that's exactly what we're doing. Lord, give me a hit. Spite the devil. Spite the devil. In fact, a double. Okay, maybe a triple. All right, we'll go all out. Give me a home run. This is what God gets out of the believer when we don't argue, complain, and we don't respond back the way our humanity would want to. Three years with Chapman, enduring the threats, the jeers, the epithets, and the catcalls. So it was a three-year period right before Ellerslie, and I don't know how to describe it, other than to say it was probably the closest thing I could identify to as a thorn in the flesh, even though it wasn't a physical ailment. So I don't know if it's the same type of thing Paul dealt with. All I know is I went through it. And that is that something was assigned to me. Some demonic horde was assigned to me to stop me to destroy me. I know it sounds very strange, everything I'm saying. However, the way it came against me was with a constant voice, and I call it the voice of diminishment. You're nothing. Shut up. No one wants to hear what you have to say. All day long, every day, all day long, every day. And in the first year, I mean, I was just pleading with God, shut this up. I knew the authority I have in Christ, and I resisted this, and I came against this, and it just kept going. And this is at the time when I'm, you know, I'm studying this, you know, the very same thing that we're bringing up right now. And I remember making it, first of all, I had to separate out and recognize this wasn't God. You ever had that where you have this voice of diminishment, this, this voice that is trying to convince you that you're nothing, you're worthless, there's no good for you to even try. And it was just incessant for me to say, well, okay, first of all, I need to know that that's not God. That is the enemy. And to just know that is a huge victory right there, because at least you know it's not God speaking to you and you know where it's coming from. So that's where the resisting is coming. 
And that's important to begin to resist because that is our job, is to not accept that as the truth. But as it progresses, it can wear you down. So you have to deliberately make it like exercise equipment. Imagine if someone was throwing barbells at you all day. I mean, those are heavy things, and they're hitting you. There's two ways of handling that. One is to fall over and just let them keep hitting you and pile up on top of you, and that will defeat you. The other one is to receive it and say, thank you, and do some curls with, hey, thank you. Hey, this is great, and receive it with exercise. And when you do, guess what? You turn into Hercules. And the enemy has to start measuring what he's doing because he's only making you stronger with his attacks. That's right. You see, if you want to tactically win this battle, rejoice. Give thanks. Embrace this challenge. When Chapman starts yelling at you, get a smirk on your face and hit a home run. This is how the Christian lives. This is how we thrive. We don't need to respond to Chapman. We show the heavenly realms who's boss. We deal out home runs is what we do. We rejoice, we give thanks in all things. We receive this misery, this human misery, but we receive it with joy and we allow it to make us stronger the same way exercise makes us stronger. I don't know how many of you have ever exercised really hard to the point where you can hardly stand, but it's not easy, right? It's similar. But if you know something and that is that this is making you stronger, you can go through almost anything. If you know it's making you stronger, hey, you have cheer even in those difficult moments. If you don't, if you think it's defeating you, you'll lose heart very quickly. The silent portrait of nobility. Isn't that a great statement, the silent portrait? That one writer, uh, Scott Simon, I think was his name, said that Jackie is like the greatest picture, of, it was like the silent portrait uh, in American history. Uh, one of the greatest silent portraits in American history. He was silent. What an interesting statement about Jackie Robinson. Hardly said a word. What is he supposed to say? Anything he says can and will be used against him. And so he was silent. And yet he still spoke with a, in a very profound way. When he would get to first base, he would drive the picture, pitchers crazy because he was immediately trying to steal second. He's speaking very loudly, guys. He's all over the place. All the fans are hearing him talk. He's like, I'm gonna get to second. You can't stop me. And they couldn't stop him. He was amazing, truly an amazing player. So the silent portrait of nobility, responding to the vile with virtue. You see, our response isn't to respond to vileness with vileness. Our response is to respond to vile with virtue. Where do we get our model from? His name is Jesus Christ. And even 750 years before he died on that cross, his death on that cross is clearly enunciated in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So proof that he is indeed the Messiah. See, one of the ways that we test our Messiah is against the Old Testament. He is going to be a fulfillment of what was prophesied. So what we can see is as evidence that he is the Messiah is that he is going to fulfill Isaiah 53. And when he is led to the slaughter, he is like a sheep going to be silent before its shearers. So here's just a template, a taste of it. But Jesus kept silent. That's Matthew 26, 63. 
but he answered him not one word. So that the governor, who was Pilate in this case, marveled greatly, Matthew 27, 13 through 14. But he kept silent and answered nothing, Mark 14, 60. But Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled, Mark 15, 5. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing, Luke 23, 9. Pilate said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer, John 19, 9. Jesus, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, 1 Peter 2, 23. Look at how Pilate responds. He marvels. You see, Pilate is not a believer. He's a symbol of the world in this storyline. A world that is, you know, could care less if we live or die. Doesn't have any, you know, horse in this race. He's just trying to do his job. And in comes Jesus into his world. And he is going to watch Jesus and marvel. And it's interesting because he's going to marvel not because Jesus said something eloquent, said something wise. When he's being accused, he's going to be silent. And Pilate knows that that's basically humanly impossible. If you're being accused like Jesus was being accused, even falsely accused and not saying a word, to be stripped naked, you're the king of the universe, to be stripped naked, to have a crown of mocking thorns pressed into your brow, to be scourged with a cat of nine tails, and to not say, hey, you got the wrong guy. Hey, guys, all I've done is come to love you. I'm innocent. I've never even sinned once. Doesn't say a thing. But he takes it. Because he is doing something greater. You see, when we are hindered, when we are berated, when we are ridiculed and we take it, God can accomplish something greater, just like you're going to see in the life of Jesus. It's our redemption, guys. It's not just a man walking through difficulty well. He is actually procuring our salvation. When we take it the way Jesus took it, we are also accomplishing something greater. It's not the salvation, but it's the continuation. It is the revelation of God's salvation in and through us, the church. So proof that we are indeed in the Messiah. What is that proof? It's how we handle our difficulty. It's how we handle Ben Chapman yelling at us. There's our proof. That's how the world sees it. Let the world marvel. No human could ever do that. When Ben Chapman is yelling at you, believe me, you want to shut Ben Chapman up. And yet, we showcase to the world that we are actually in that great Messiah by how we respond to Ben Chapman. I'm not saying that there isn't a time for speaking. I'm not saying that there isn't a time for a clear response, maybe even with a bit of wit. But I'm also saying there is a time when we need to be like Jackie Robinson and just stand in that batter's box and take it and speak in a different way. We speak in the language of heaven in a way that this world can stand back and say, that guy's got the stuff. See, Jackie Robinson is gonna speak in a way. In his generation, he's gonna be silent in one sense, and he's going to speak louder than almost anyone else in another. And as believers, we need to learn how to speak in that second way that actually has a louder voice, and that starts in our behavior not just in our correct doctrinal statements, but it starts with how we live our lives. And if we're willing to live our lives grandly, nobly, honorably, even when this world hates us, we love them. 
that will transform the world in which we live. Father, I ask that you would do this work of grace in us to make us men and women that truly can stand in that batter's box, berated, slandered, ridiculed, mocked, and hit home runs. Lord Jesus, we want to do this for your glory, honor, and praise. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.